should wait to come out, that you should uh, try to gain rank or status before you do that. That's a bunch of bull It's a new day in the music industry, and I can reach my fans. We're getting there. I've caused harm to the political agenda, and which I'm actually happy for. I would say probably the best message to them is that they're on the wrong side of history. Whether you're lesbian, gay, bi, transgender, or whatever, love is love. Shout it out to the world. The Michelle Miao Show. Your A through Z, covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between show. And now, here's your host, Michelle Miao. Hi, this is Sima Lieberman, the inclusionist, with everyday conversations on race for everyday people, where we bring people together from different backgrounds to talk about race, have a comfortable conversation, and bring race to the people. Today, in my studio, I have two really exciting guests. I have Howard Ross and I have Sangeeta Kastori. And we're going to be talking about sexual harassment, sexual assault as it relates to race and all women. And we're going to be talking about polarization since the election or increased polarization since the election. First, I'm going to have Howard and Sangeeta introduce themselves. So, Howard, would you just introduce yourself, and then Sangeeta, I'll have you introduce yourself. Sure. Hi, Seema. It's great to be with you. Um, I'm the founding partner of Cook Ross Incorporated, which is an international consulting firm. We do work around issues of diversity, inclusion, leadership, and cultural change all over the world. And tell us, who, since they can't see you, can you say something about your ethnic and racial background so they could get a picture of who you are? Sure. I'm a six-foot-five-inch white heterosexual male. Um, I'm Jewish, uh, so I am in the embodiment of privilege in uh, most of my uh, physical characteristics. And I've been doing this work uh, for really all my life. I started doing civil rights work when I was a teenager and been a social justice activist my whole life and professionally figured out a way to make a living at it about 35 years ago. Thank you. And Sangeeta? It's absolutely wonderful to be here. Thank you for having me. I run a company called Action Inclusion, and we work with organizations to help them develop diversity strategies, think differently about inclusive leadership and unconscious bias. You can't see me, as you mentioned, and so I'll describe myself. I'm Indian-American by background. I, Howard, I'm nowhere near six feet tall. I'm 5'3". Five, 5'3", <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, but uh, never felt from my height, honestly. I feel like I'm six feet tall. My background is in engineering, arts, and uh, for the past 15 years, I've been working with organizations all over the world, helping them become more inclusive and, again, have these comfortable conversations about topics that generally tend to make people a little bit squeamish. Ah, okay. Well, thank you. Now, what I've been reading a lot, and I'm sure you have too, about uh, the issue with Harvey Weinstein, sexual harassment, sexual assault. And uh, previous to that, we were reading about Bill Cosby, issues of sexual harassment and sexual assault. Most of the people who've come forward seem to be very high profile. These are very high profile cases. So it's a good thing. But I'm curious, what do the two of you think about women who are not high profile, who also are being subject to sexual assault and sexual harassment? Sangeeta, why don't we start with you, since I know that you do a lot of work with women. Yeah, absolutely. So the hashtag MeToo campaign has been a blessing and a curse. 
a curse, of course, to anybody who has had to come forward and say me too. A blessing in that it's really opened up the space to begin to have a conversation about an issue that's been prevalent in all cultures for eons. So this is nothing new. So as a woman, and I think many women would agree, that everyday sexual harassment is simply a part and condition of being female. So we're talking about whether it's, you know, cat calls from construction workers and appropriate advances from your boss. Ever since the Me Too campaign, I have been polling women uh, to find out what their experiences have been in terms of uncomfortable sexual advances, innuendos, language, and I've really yet to meet a single woman who has said, not me. Everybody seems to be saying, me too. Yeah. Howard, uh, what have you seen? And what, what are your thoughts on it? What have you seen? Well, not I, that you speak for all men, of course. No, no, I, I, I think not. But uh, um, I think, well, first of all, I'd like to build on what Sangeet is talking about, which is in my experience, once people start talking about this, and I've seen this both in direct contact, but also in the work. Um, <clears throat> my wife and business partner, Leslie Traub, does a lot of work with women, and especially women across race. And, um, and it's unbelievable the number of people who, who have... Uh, various levels of this experience in their lives, and and, and especially um, unbelievable the number of people who have what we might call real sexual trauma in their lives. I mean, um, you know, 30, 40, 50 percent of the people in groups she'll do will, will talk about how they've had some kind of trauma like that. I think one of the things that we need to look at in terms of the intersection between um, harassment and race is that uh, the recognition, as we know, that, that sexual harassment is really a power issue. It's not, it, it occurs sexually, but it's really a power issue. And since race is fundamentally a power dynamic, what that means is the overlay of those are, are particularly dangerous and particular, make uh, pe- women of color particularly vulnerable. Yeah, I want to actually build a little bit, Howard, on what you said. Uh, I think that sexual uh, harassment knows no race. So there, it is a power issue. I'll, I'll have to completely agree with you on that. It is absolutely a power issue. People tend to think that issues of rape and, you know, violence against women are perpetu- you know, perpetrated as a sexual release. They're not. It's, it's an issue of, of power and dominance. Uh, that said... I think that sexual harassment knows no race and it knows no class. The women who have come forward have been women of, you know, prominence and social stature. And um, it's, you know, it's a good time now to break the silence. I'm sorry that we haven't broken the silence uh, years ago. At the same time, I think it's important not to implicate all men as perpetrators of this kind of violence against women. Oh, absolutely. Um, Sangeeta, have you ever experienced uh, sexual harassment or sexual assault through at I work? Have. I've experienced it. I have not experienced it at work. I've experienced it in my personal life. I had an incident that happened to me when I was um, 12 years old, which has uh, shaped the way that I think about uh, gender, and it shaped the way that I uh, approached life, and it's really you know, made a mark on me in terms of my refusal not to be powerless. I made that decision many, many, you know, many years ago. Uh, it's, and I'm not the only one. I'm not the only one. I think I would ask you, even though you're the host of the show, I'll ask you back. Have you ever been a victim of any kind of harassment, Simma? Yes, uh, at work. And I um, mean, I could just tell you about two experiences I had. One was, um, I spent years, my background, I spent years of my life being an hourly employee. 
And I really did not feel like I had a lot of power. And I was assaulted one night. Uh, I was working in a restaurant, and the owner of the restaurant assaulted me. And I remember I never went back. I didn't even go back to get my final paycheck because I was so scared, and I felt like, why didn't I say no? And then the other thing that happened was, for a while, I, I was really young. I had a career as a model, uh, as a high fashion model, which is a long time ago. And I had to deal with a lot of photographers. And there's one photographer in particular, two actually in particular, and one who really impacted me, who was just like Harvey Weinstein. I mean, gross, disgusting, horrible. Other people knew what was going on. I know I wasn't the only one. What ended happening to me, though, was I, I, I felt like I couldn't handle it, and I dropped out, and I had other issues going on. But uh, it was just like what they said that he did to these women. That's what this guy did, and there were other people around. He never put his hands on me. I didn't get that close, but he was everything else that he was doing was was what he was doing. And it was the verbal, it was, it, was, it was all of that. And I never said anything at the time because in my mind I was thinking, why didn't I say no? Why didn't I have enough self-esteem to just stand up for myself? Why didn't I tell anybody? And I never told anybody. I mean, I never told anybody until a few weeks ago. Yeah, you know, there's, a, there's certainly a shroud of shame that goes around incidents like these. I think there are a couple of issues here why people don't talk talk about it. There's the shroud of, of shame. You know, you wonder what you did and you wonder uh, if there's something you could have done to prevent it and the answer to that is no. Uh, the other thing is, it's so frequent and it's such an everyday occurrence. If every woman who were approached inappropriately were to make an issue of it every single day, you'd be talking all day about that. There wouldn't be enough time to do a whole lot of, you know, a whole lot of other work. Would you say that? Oh, go ahead, Howard. Yeah, I was just going to say. I think I think that the other thing that we need to recognize is that is that because it is a power issue, um, w- women who are victims often feel susceptible to being to uh, vindictiveness for their reporting. So if it, yeah. I think we're seeing this with the Weinstein Weinstein issue is that these young ast- actresses, even people like um, Gwyneth Paltrow and and people like that, who we now see as big stars, at the time um, there's there's risk involved. If I if I challenge this person, if I call out this person, is this going to affect my career? And and I think this is where the power dynamic is so important for us to understand. I mean. We wonder, I think, a lot why it is that the response to the Weinstein issue has been qualitatively different and, and also different in terms of how quickly it, it came to the surface as opposed to the Cosby thing, which has dragged on for a long time, or the thing with President Trump, which, of course, didn't go anywhere. And I think there are lots of dynamics here, of course, the fact that it was a political campaign and all of that stuff. But I think not an insignificant issue is that the people who are accusing Harvey Weinstein are people who people know and they respect and they have identities of their own. And when you see people like Ashley Judd and Gwyneth Paltrow and some of the other, um, Lupita now and some of the other names coming forward, um, there's a lot more credibility there. And that kind of gets back to what I was saying earlier. I wasn't suggesting suggesting earlier that that this doesn't happen to to women of all races, but I think that the lower power position the person is who's the victim of this behavior, the less opportunity they have for doing anything of it and the greater risks they have for doing something about it. And so in that sense, somebody who's an hourly employee like you were, Seema, or somebody who is in a group who is seen as less than, whether by race, gender, sexual orientation, or whatever else, is is that has that one more greater hurdle 
to, to cover in order to stand forward and, and lay their claim and to expect to be believed. Um, the fact that Cosby's, uh, most of, many of Cosby's accusers were women of color, but mo- people knew very few of them, very few popular names, yeah. probably had a lot to do with the fact that this dragged on for a lot longer, whereas all of a sudden Weinstein is gone within three days practically. Right, except that Weinstein's uh, advances and Weinstein's actions have been going on for years. Oh, of course. It just came to it just you know came to bear, which begs the question. Even though it's been going on for many many years with people of high prominence, it still hasn't been reported. Mm-hmm. It's only now getting it's only now getting talked about. Mm-hmm. So you know this is where I would say that it doesn't matter you know how much. Uh, whereas if you have privilege, you tend to have more credibility. If you are more visible in the public eye, you tend to have more visibility. That is true. People who have had that kind of privilege and that kind of prominence have not come forward until now. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt. Yeah. So, okay, I was just going to say, which I think speaks to um, the depth of the feelings yeah. that you were describing, the feelings of shame, the feelings of, of, of you know, being trapped in that circumstance, that even people who we see as that powerful and that prominent didn't speak up. Um, really speaks to your point, I think, really makes your point strongly. Well, I just got to stop everybody for a second. We, we've got to stop for a commercial break. Uh, this is Sima Lieberman, The Inclusionist, with Howard Ross and Sangeeta Kastori. We'll be back after the break to continue talking about sexual harassment, sexual assault, race, and women. The Commonwealth Club of California is the nation's leading public forum engaged with the most important issues of the day. More than 450 times each year, we feature programs on politics, LGBT issues, literature, science, entertainment, and more. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and Google Play, watch our videos on YouTube and Facebook, and when you're in the Bay Area, join us in person for our daily programs. Learn more about the club at commonwealthclub.org. Babe, I think we're ready. We're really doing this. Yeah, I'm ready for our family. So where do we start? (laughs) Starting a family is a team effort, and when life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side as a unified team of the best fertility specialists guided by the highest ethical standards Pacific Fertility Center provides patients with compassionate fertility care. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. This is a true story about two best friends who fell in love and moved across the country to the city by the bay. After many years of dating, Jen and Jacqueline are now planning their dream wedding. It's a big moment in everyone's life when you say I do, especially when you can make choices for your authentic life and your loved ones too. Congratulations, Jen and Jacqueline. Live your authentic life. A special message brought to you by Weatherford BMW. Thanks for listening to the Progressive Voices Network, streaming the best in progressive talk 24-7. Keep the progressive conversation going on by joining our community. Each week, we send out an email that covers important things taking place in the Progressive Voices Network and throughout the progressive world. Be the first to know of upcoming shows, schedule changes, exclusive programming, and more. Simply go to ProgressiveVoices.com and sign up for our mailing list. It's that easy. ProgressiveVoices.com. Thanks for listening, and thanks for joining the Progressive Voices community. And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show. All 
Hi, this is Sima Lieberman, the inclusionist, back from the break with Everyday Conversations for Everyday People. Right now, we're talking to Howard Ross and Sangeeta Kastori, and uh, we're going to talk more about sexual harassment, sexual assault. And during the break, Howard and I were talking, Sangeeta, about the fact that while sexual assault is not, knows no race, I think, would you agree though that people who are women of color or people who are hourly employees might feel more powerless and less likely to speak up? No, I wouldn't agree. Oh, oh then do no. Not at all. No, I, I, I do agree that women of color, hourly employees, et cetera, when you bring class into the equation and class is yeah. conflated with race in this country and in many you know, several other countries as well. When you bring that into the equation, yes, there is a yeah. power dynamic there, and yes, that women of, who belong to that category are more susceptible. But if you were to look at high-class women of, you know, prominence and, you know, power, women in that category are not necessarily speaking up either, and they haven't been. This mm-hmm. is, if you think about it, if you think about the cultural narrative over the past 10 years, Harvey Weinstein, this incident is the first time that women of prominence have come forth in mass like they have. Why haven't they, why didn't they do so last year? Why didn't they do so five years ago? Um, I, I want to actually offer a quick explanation to that. Please. I don't want to simplify this. This is a very, very complex mm-hmm. issue. But I think we're you know, dealing with some pretty toxic definitions of masculinity and a cultural collusion that causes everybody to accept criminally bad behavior on the part of men and to excuse it. People apparently have said, you know, well, that's just Harvey. That's just how he is. Or we hear, you know, boys will be boys. Or that's just locker room talk was what I heard a lot in the case of Trump. So when we accept this definition of masculinity, where it's okay to exert that kind of power and dominance over another category of people, and in this case we're talking about gender, I I think there's something in that conversation that needs to change. I think we need to redefine uh, masculinity. I do a lot of work in redefining femininity and trying to eliminate thinking that, uh, you know, women are supposed to be the caregivers and nurturers of society and rather opening that role up to all people regardless of gender. I think we need to rethink our definitions of masculinity as well. Well, I I would, you know, I know we only have a few more minutes with you because I know that you have to go. So I would love to, I hope that hopefully you can come on the show again and, uh, and we could have a deeper conversation. Howard, did you want to say something? Yeah, real quickly. I think, first of all, I, re- I agree with you completely, Sangeeta. And, I, and, you know, one of the things that we find is when we're asked to work in organizations and do programs for women, for example, a lot of times we're asked to do women's leadership programs to help um, empower uh, women in your organization. One of the things we've started to tell people is that we'll only do them if we can also work with the men. Because yeah. if you don't change both yeah. sides of the dynamic, you're not going to change it. I think one of the reasons that... Um, you know, the other thing is that one of the reasons why we have to ask the question of why weren't more people coming forward is, you know, we learn from basic social action theory that something happens, that first person who comes forward starts to break the ice. It's actually the second person who comes forward who starts to, who starts the flood. And I think w- if we look at what happened with the, with the Cosby case,
case with the Trump situation. Now with uh, Weinstein, you see this happening. You know, years go by, nobody says anything. All of a sudden, one or two people come forward, and then that just the or with uh, Tiger Woods was the same thing. The floodgate opens, and all of a sudden, we have now dozens and dozens and dozens of people who've been holding on to this information. It's a little bit like the broken windows theory. You know, once that first window gets broken, all of a sudden stuff starts to happen. Um, and and so the more people can come forward, the more people are encouraged to come forward, the more there's safe space for people to come forward in their organizations, in their homes, in their churches, synagogues, and mosques, anywhere else, um, the more easy it is it becomes for other people to come forward. And that's why I think this Me Too campaign is so important. Thank and you. I agree with you completely, Howard. So I, I, I do uh, want to also restate my total alignment with you in the thinking that you really can't change perceptions about women without also changing perceptions about men. And that was actually the subject of a TED Talk that I released oh, uh, recently and is the basis of much of the work that I do in organizations as well. Beautiful. Because we have to, we have to do it together. So it's, I know it's, I'm, I'm looking at the time, and I know it's, we only have a couple of minutes with you, Sagita. So what would, you, what, what would you say to women, if any woman is listening right now, what would you say to a woman who is being harassed at work? And what would you tell men to do that they could support women? So for men, I would say that you are a partner, you're an accomplice by a mission or commission. Mm-hmm. So do neither, neither commit the crime. And if you see it, then say something, call it out. Don't let it go as, you know, well, that's just Joe, that's how he is, or so-and-so didn't mean anything by it. If you see it, say something. And for women, speak up. There is no shame. And unless all of us open up and bring our voices forward, we are not going to benefit from the strength and numbers that really help solve so many of the social issues that have been solved over the years just by millions of voices coming together. Well, thank you, thank you, thank you so much. Thank you so much. We've Absolutely, re- really enjoyed. I, I really enjoyed having you on the show, and uh, I, and I know it's twelve thirty, so we. I will contact you so you could we could do a longer show with you. Thank you, thank you so much, and Howard, it's been a pleasure being on the show with you as well. The same. Thanks so much. Thank you. Okay, so. Time to pause for another commercial break. Sima Lieberman, The Inclusionist. And when we come back, I'm going to be talking to Howard Ross. And we're going to continue talking about sexual harassment and sexual assault. But we're going to be talking about polarization also. Many nonprofits rely on events to raise money, create space for community gathering, and offer opportunities to network. But how many hours in a day do community leaders have when they're busy changing the world? Imagine your next event, gala, festival, or celebration professionally executed with creative ideas and ideals to match your community service. IDK is the community's trusted event production company. Visit idkevents.com for all your event production needs. The Commonwealth Club is a unique organization that brings together people from a variety of backgrounds to explore important issues as a community. Sooner or later, everyone worth hearing comes to our stage. From Marga Gomez to Richard Chamberlain, from James Hormel to Kate Kendall, leading thinkers, activists, politicians, and artists have come to the Commonwealth Club of California. 
Ted Olson and David Boyes came here to discuss their winning legal strategy for same-sex marriage. Jason Collins talked about gay athletes. The Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence discussed activism and good works. Actor and director Rob Reiner explained how he got Hollywood behind same-sex marriage. Barney Frank described what it's like to be gay at the highest levels of Washington. From healthcare reform to transgender rights, from immigration to gay-owned businesses, it's all at the Commonwealth Club. And that's still just a portion of the 450 programs we present every single year, with new programming nearly every single day. Be a part of the conversation. Learn more at commonwealthclub.org, download our free app in iTunes, and join us in person the next time you're in San Francisco. The Commonwealth Club of California puts you face-to-face -face with today's thought leaders. And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show. This is Sima Lieberman, the inclusionist again, with everyday conversations on race for everyday people. And I'm talking to Howard Ross. We're finishing up our conversation. Well, not really finishing up the conversation, but just for today on sexual assault and uh, sexual harassment, race and women. And Howard, I had a feeling that you wanted to say something before the break, after Sangeeta spoke. No, I just, I, I mean, I, I was just going to say that I think that um, it's so important for us to recognize that as men, um, we do have a responsibility in the matter, and that is to, and I think this is always true for people in a dominant group, whether it's around race or gender or sexual orientation or anything else, that we not leave it up to people who are victims of this kind of behavior to be the only ones who speak out against it, because um, the, victim, the part of the victimization trap is that when people do speak up about being victimized, they can then be victimized for speaking up, so um, you now become a target because because of the fact that you put somebody who's, you know, Bill Cosby case is a good example, put somebody who's beloved on the hot seat, well, now you become the problem to many people who feel a natural defensiveness towards people who they've had a long-term relationship with in their mind for their whole lives. And so, so often in organizations, uh, it, it's, it's critically important for men to speak up about harassment against women, for white people to speak up about harassment against race, and for straight people to speak up harassment around uh, LGBT issues. I, I agree 100%. Mm. And I'm going to say something that might sound a little bit strange. I also want to be clear, for me, that we are in this together as equals. I mean, we may not have equal treatment, but we have to deal with a solution as equals. So I would hate to say, I'm just saying this now as a warning. Men, the answer to this is not to all of a sudden go around apologizing all over the place. It's like I tell white people, too, when it comes to race, you don't need to just go around apologizing all over the place. But you really need to see that we all have to be, we have to be equal in terms of uh, coming up with solutions and creating change. And I know I was at your program yesterday, and you were talking about polarization. So do you think that in terms of race, in terms of politics, in terms of gender, in terms of class, how do you see polarization playing out? Well, yeah, let me, I, I just want to quickly respond to something that you just said. I mean, I, I, the place where I would disagree with what you were saying about apologizing is when people have a specific person who they did something to. Oh, yes. And I think that, you know, there are men who are now in circumstances where they're kind of waking up to this behavior that was considered to be sort of locker room behavior that they thought, you know, was just kind of boys being boys and now saying, oh my God, I might have really hurt this person. And if that happened... 
sending a person a note or picking up a note and saying, you know, when you and I had that interaction, I was wrong and I take full responsibility for being wrong and I want you to know that and I apologize for any damage it did to you. I think that can provide closure sometimes to victims of those kinds of behavior um, to, to allow people to move on. So. Oh, I, I agree. Yeah. I agree. And actually, no, I know you were talking more about the yeah, general yeah, sort of blanket general. apology. Yeah, because I'm saying if you have something to apologize for, we, we want you to apologize. We right. want you to be as specific <laughs> as possible. And don't just say, I'm sorry, but say what you're apologizing for. And also, we want to know what you were thinking, too. And I did have that happen to me. I, when yeah. I was much younger in college, I had, so, I had a, another incident. And uh, a couple of years later, that person, that, that man came back and apologized to mm. me. Yeah, I think the key here is to not slip into guilt and shame so much as responsibility. Take responsibility for your actions and move on. And I think it not only serves the person who was victimized, but it also serves the person who was the perpetrator to not carry that with them. So so getting back to your question about polarization, yeah, as I was saying yesterday, um, we've moved into a time now where the polarization in our society is is deeper and broader than has ever been, um, at least ever been in in anybody's memory who's living. Um, You know, uh, as you know, I showed some some statistics about the, the political polarization, for example. And we know that, you know, as, as recently as 1994, um, according to Pew Research, uh, basically we were, we were living in a bell curve where most people in the political world were in the sort of big middle ground where, where they would uh, team up on different issues or not on other issues. So you might have, for example, Democrats and Republicans who were collaborate on a health care issue uh, but feel different about uh, p- uh, foreign policy. They might collaborate on a taxation issue but feel differently about gun control. And, and that often went of across party lines. And, and the great mass, when you look at the curve, when you look at the data, it curves out almost perfectly like a bell curve. Now we've moved to a dumbbell curve where everybody is on the extremes <laughs> and nobody's in the middle. And, yeah. um, and statistically, you can really see this. And, and it's stark when you actually look at it in graphs how different it looks. And this huge valley now in between the most extreme people on the right and the most extreme people on the left uh, with no compromise in the middle. And in fact, compromise becoming a dirty word. And when that happens, the other thing, the other thing is when you you look at the voting patterns in those two sides, you can see that there are dramatic racial patterns in voting there. People of color on one side, whites on the other side. There, there are gender patterns on the other side, predominantly men on one side and, and women on the other side. Um, and so, and clearly sexual orientation patterns, you know, all of this. And so what's happened is we've gone from an issue orientation in our politics and our political sphere to an identity orientation. And this is really critical and really dangerous because when we disagree on issues, um, we can talk about those issues. We can, you know, disagree have a strong argument, a strong debate, and then go out and get dinner together. When we have determined that you're the wrong kind of person, that the fundamental identity of who you are is different than the fundamental identity of who I am, then we've got a real problem in terms of finding any kind of way to compromise and any kind of way to meet the middle. It becomes much more easily easy to demonize the other. It becomes much more easy to stereotype the other um, and to put them in a box over there as the kind of person they are. Do you think that there's a lot more stereotyping going on of those people all voted for Trump. Those people all think this way. These people think all think that way. Oh, yeah. I don't think there's any question about it. In fact, um, I think I shared with you that, uh, you know, I noticed after the election, I've, I've spent most of my career. I mean, my politics are pretty hard left. And so it's not a matter of what belief systems are. I think it's, 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 it's not a matter of what our point of view is. It's that sometimes we forget that our point of view is a point of view. And we think that we're speaking truth, which means, of course, that they're either lying or wrong, that we're righteous, which means that they're either evil or bad. And, um, and there's no question in between. And I had, I had noticed that in the election campaign, especially, I had slipped into that mindset 
after you know spending most of my life trying to be somebody who at least listened to and tried to understand the other side. So I took some time off and was thinking about it and came back and I started to interview people who voted for President Trump. Um, and so I conducted about 50 interviews. There were there wasn't a scientific interview study. I mean, I an Uber driver, or somebody sitting next to me on airplanes, or people I knew, that sort of a thing. And it was fascinating to me um, how much I had stereotyped people in that group, and how broad the range was of the reasons people gave. Uh, there were certainly a, a certain percentage who were you might call the hardcore on the edge, who you know were full throated support, but overwhelmingly. 26 out of the 48 people I formally interviewed said that they voted more against Clinton than they voted for Trump. Um, people who voted on special issues, abortion, gun control, um, health care, the like. Um, then there were a number of people who just felt like they felt like we need something different. They didn't want another politician as usual. Um, but all over the place, and, and, a, and a lot of people, uh, not an insignificant number, who gave some response which was similar to, you know, I, had, I just held my nose and voted that way because I didn't want to throw away my vote and I couldn't vote for her, so I voted for him. So it's really changed the way I look at that group. I now refer to them as people who voted for Trump rather than Trump supporters. Do you think that with the resurgence, I mean, I... See, with the resurgence of white supremacy and Nazism, I don't even know if you call it a resurgence, but kind of like coming out of the woodwork. Mm -hmm. How do you think it's impacting race in this country? Are you seeing more polarization? Are you seeing uh, people trying to say white people do, people of color do? What do, what do you see? Well, I think, you know, look, there's no question. You know, we've known forever. I mean, anybody who paid any attention knew that these hate groups were there. I mean, the hate groups are there. And if you and if you follow people like the Southern Poverty Law Center and places like that, that you and I, because of our profession, you know, pay attention to, we've known that these hate groups have been there all along. Nobody ever had any illusion that the Klan had gone away. I think that what's happened is all of a sudden uh, people do feel more comfortable voicing those concerns. They feel like they have more support. Uh, and, and at the very least, they feel like there's going to be less recrimination nation, even if there's not more support. Um, and so I think that these voices are coming out. Now, it's really hard to determine how many people this is. Um, and so it's hard to know whether this is an accelerating movement. Uh, generally speaking, one would say the more people talk about things, the more it tends to draw people towards them who might be the person sitting in their basement or sitting in the corner of the mall spitting at people and now find some place to hook up. And I think and I think it's, it's also important to recognize that social media plays a huge role now in the ability for a lot of these people to coalesce, people who are loners who get part of a movement. Yeah. Um, all that having been said, um, uh, it's important, e e no matter how few in number people are, it's important to recognize, for people to recognize that when, uh, you know, you look at, uh, you know, our experience both being Jewish and, and to see Nazi symbols being marched down an American street is, tr is at the very least troubling. And for people from my parents' generation or my grandparents' generation, um, it would have been terrifying. In the same sense, uh, for African Americans to see people shouting Klan slogans or, or, you know, shouting slogans of white supremacy, it is terrifying. And a lot of, I think a lot of folks who are not members of that group look at those reactions and say, well, you're overreacting. It's just a handful of people. But we don't realize that the reaction doesn't come from a feeling only of personal threat. It comes to, there are now people who are outwardly saying things that are reminiscent of a time when people and I were lynched, where people and I were burned, where people and I were, were killed for being who we are. And all of a sudden, those voices are allowed in the public sphere again. That's, that's, that's a terrifying prospect. And it comes directly to, are my children safe? Or is my husband safe? Is my wife safe? Are my parents safe? Um, in a very real way. Yeah, and I know we're, we're looking at that and there is so much more extremism. But what about in general? Do you think that 
people if people who are like more liberal who uh, do, do you see enough conversations happening across race? No. Okay, would you say that, some more about that? Sure. I, I um, agree. There's no question that they're not. I mean, I think, I think it was Eric Holder when he was still Attorney General who yeah. said that we're cowards about talking about race in this country, and I think it's true. And I think, I think a big piece of it is that we're afraid of it because uh, in attempting to talk about it a lot, uh, we find ourselves getting in more rather than less hot water. I think that's especially true for white people, this concept of white fragility that, is, um, that Robin DiAngelo uh, really uh, named and has been – um, that is, you know, I think is very real, and that is that there, there's this great fear among white people. If I say the wrong thing, I'm going to be accused of being a racist, and then what happens to me? You know, I become, I get thrown in the same boat as, as David Duke. You know, um, and and that's that's of course problematic in that we can't, if we can't talk about things, we can't resolve them. I think another factor is that for the most part, we don't know how to talk about them. We know how to argue about them. We know how to try to get into the cycle of convincing or being convinced, um, but we don't really know how to talk about them in a constructive way as a whole, as society, and as a result of that, we avoid doing something that we're not trained to do. The challenge is if, you know, if we can't talk about something, how are we ever going to resolve it? And, and I think one of the things that we need to do is we need to begin to develop ways to, and this is what we're doing with our clients now in, in organizations, is to, is to help them develop ways to have these conversations in a constructive way. Because what's going, what we're very clear about is what goes on in the public sphere comes right into our workplaces. I know that a lot of my work has been in dialogue and bringing people together to talk across race and to take the con- and across differences to take the conversation somewhere. And I and I know and I know you and I'm sure you have these conversations all the time with people from di- from different cultures. Mm-hmm. What do you think? What do you What do you think we should be doing to get more people to have this conversation? <laughs> Well, I think, uh, you know, one of the reasons that I, you know, like to do this work through um, workplaces and businesses, environments, colleges and universities, that sort of thing, is because I think that our workplaces are one of the few places anymore in society where we really are put into a position of having to interact with people different from us. If we look at what's going on socially, we know that uh, communities are getting more segregated now than they have been in the 60s. Schools are more segregated now than they were at the end of the 1960s, and I don't think most Americans realize that because a lot of the protections and uh, regulations have have gone the way of time and in some cases uh, been challenged. And so, therefore, we've got more um, students in the South, for example, who are in schools that are almost exclusively of color um, than we did in 1968, 1969. Um, And Dr. King said Sunday morning is the most segregated time in America, and that's still pretty much true, that our places of worship are generally pretty segregated. And so the workplace is one of the only places we have where people have to work together with that person who's sitting next to them who may come from a completely different group from them. Um, And so it also gives us an incredible opportunity to do the work in the workplace. It helps us create a better team to work together in the workplace, but also has social impact outside of the workplace. And so I think more organizations who are doing things like that, the better. You know, for example, Carolyn Wonga, who is the chief diversity officer at Target, um, brings together uh, large groups of employees after the um, after the Muslim ban was installed. She brought together not only Muslim, but other employees to talk about that. When the immigration stuff was being talked about, she brought people to talk about that. I was at General Mills a couple of weeks ago, and we had 300 people together with trained facilitators wow. at small tables for them to have these conversations. There are ways for us to talk about this that actually enhance the workplace environment because it allows people to bring their full self to work and to feel more comfortable with each other. Yeah, and I think I, I've been called in several times after there's been police acquittals. Mm-hmm. And the issue, and I, I've been brought in oftentimes by African-American ERGs because 
The issue's been, they're coming to work. Everybody around them is really tense, particularly the white people who are very tense. They're whispering all around, and nobody's talking to them. And they're saying, hey, we want to talk about how we feel. We want to have the conversation. Mm-hmm. So what do you think, if, if, what, what would you say to, to a well-meaning white person who maybe wants to talk, but they don't know how to say anything. What, what, what advice would you give? Would you give any advice? Well, I think that I think there are a couple of things. I mean, I think first, first of all, we all have to be able to look at ourselves and recognize that, um, that we have bias. And um, if you're human, you have bias. And this is, as you know, it's a big theme of my second book, Everyday Bias, is that it's part of who we are as human beings. And so, um, and so uh, the recognition that we have bias, despite our best intentions, despite the fact that we, that we have all the best intentions in the world, we're still subject to the influences around us in our culture. And this is a, this is a culture of white supremacy, and therefore we all have that in us, all of us. Um, white and, and other have that in us. Um, and so we have to recognize that that's there. I think the fir- that's the first thing. The second thing is, um, uh, gets back to what you were saying about apology, that, that if we are going to have conversations with people of color as white people, if we want to um, uh, promote those conversations, and it's important for us to recognize that, that this is, um, it has to be some, one that honors the other person. It's not just an excuse for me to feel better about myself. And, and that means setting up the conversation in a particular way. I mean, the model that I like to use is one that actually was originally developed by Elizabeth Lesser, who was one of the co-founders of the Omega Institute. Um, and she calls it taking the other to lunch. And she says, what you do is you invite somebody who you feel like you can have a conversation with, even though you differ. Um, and you basically, you set up the agreement, which is that this is not about convincing each other. This is not about um, talking about, um, it's not about convincing each other or, or trying to win the point as much as it's about trying to understand each other. And then you ask four basic questions. The first is, what's the background experiences that you've had that had you get to the belief system you have. So we can understand how people got to what they believe in. The more we believe that, the more we understand that rather, the more likely we are to understand their point of view. The second is, what are the fears or concerns that have you um, concerned about the other position? Uh, because if we get to fear, if we get underneath the surface of behavior, the behavior is usually protective. It's covering up that fear or concern that we have. If we can get to that fear or concern, then we can really get to the heart of the matter. The third is, is there anything you would like to ask the person on the other side so that you can ask questions of each other, things you might not know about, you might not be sure about, or you've always wanted to ask? And then the last is simply to see if there's anything you need to clean up, anything you need to say that you want to apologize for, take responsibility for, so that you can move forward from that with a, with new eyes. What I hear from people so often is that they want to have the conversation, particularly white people, they want it, but not only white people, but other people say they want to have the conversation, but they feel awkward. And of course, I believe that in order to get comfortable, you have to first go through discomfort. So I would just like to ask you your experience. Did you ever go through a period in your life before you became comfortable talking about race uh, where you were uncomfortable? Oh, I, I still find, I mean, you know, I do this for a living. I talk about it all the time. There's still times and circumstances where there are, are uncomfortable moments. And certainly in the early days, there were a lot more of those uncomfortable moments. I mean, I started doing civil rights work when I was 15 years old. So I was, I was too young to know what the hell I was doing. So I think I, I found myself in a lot of circumstances way over my head. And that can, that can wake you up real quickly. Um, but I do think that, um, that one of the ways to start that conversation is to say that 
is for somebody to say, look, I have to acknowledge I, I don't have a lot of skills or experience talking about this issue, and so I feel somewhat awkward about it, but it's, I'm really committed to learning how to have these conversations, and I appreciate it if you give me feedback if I say something that's inappropriate or makes you feel uncomfortable. I think that's the way you start the conversation, uh, by owning what's there and being responsible for what's there, rather than having the fact that you're, you feel awkward stop you from moving forward, because often, in my experience, it's the conversations we feel the most awkward with which are the most important to have. Yeah. No, I agree because, I mean, I'll talk about it with anybody. And I'm like you. I, I started when I was 15. Well, before that, because I went on the Marshall Washington mm-hmm. one when I was really young. I, you know, I always like to tell people, I say, well, I, I wish I could tell you. It, it changed my life. I wish I could tell you that it was because I heard Martin Luther King speak, but I was really young. So I might have heard him speak. I don't know. <laughs> but I know I was looking around at everybody. And, uh, and I, I think that for me, too, it was being willing to be uncomfortable and being willing to share my experiences with other people that made a difference for me. What? So now, if we know that we want to have a conversation about race, we think that it's really important, and I think that it's, it's really crucial. How... How do people, and I, I, a lot of white people are afraid of being attacked. They're afraid of saying the wrong thing. And this is what I hear because I've also d- done some surveys. What would you say, what would you say to somebody like that who said, you know, I'm white, I want to have the conversation. Um, what happens if I'm having the conversation and I do say the wrong thing? Whatever, whatever the wrong thing is. Well, I mean, one of the things I say to people, first of all, is that I know you may be afraid of being accused of being racist or afraid of being attacked, to use your word, verbally attacked or the like. Um, but does that fear supersede the fear that African-Americans feel that their sons could be killed by police officers or that their daughters could be raped or that other th- things could actually happen that threaten their lives because of the same dynamics we're talking about? I mean, we have to be willing to be uncomfortable if we're going to change things. And, um, and that doesn't mean it's pleasant. I'm not minimizing the fact that it's unpleasant because sometimes what happens when you get into these conversations, you trigger a... a um, a sort of deeply held rage that people have that may come out towards you and it's actually meant towards the whole group you represent. And it's it's understandable that that can happen, even if it sometimes is inappropriately placed anger and it's uncomfortable when that happens. So I don't mean to minimize that, but I think that there are bigger stakes involved than just our comfort. Uh, you know, I mean, if we want to be comfortable, we can just lay in a warm bathtub all day with our with a thing around our head that keeps it from sinking and we'll be fine, but we're not going to get much done in life. So I think that I think it's important that we be willing to lean into that discomfort if we're going to get it done. I think the second thing is, is, as I said before, is to be as authentic as you can be with people about your feelings of vulnerability. And this is a hard conversation. I don't know how to have this conversation. I just know that I want to have the conversation and any assistance you can give me to the person I'm talking to uh, you know, any feedback you can give me to make sure that I do it in a way that's constructive, I, I fully am open to. Um, and I think that that's how we get started. Thanks, Howard. We'll be back in a minute. Now we have to pause for another commercial break. This is Sima Lieberman, The Inclusionist, talking to Howard Ross about race, racism, and polarization. The spotlight on success and achievement goes to LGBTQI members of the Bay Area who have demonstrated an incredible amount of success. We're very proud to announce that this month's spotlight on success and achievement is Rick Welts. 
Well, it's been an unbelievable stretch of time, obviously. Uh, everything the Warriors have gone through this season, really a magical season that ended in a championship. Uh, and now to, to top it off a week later with the opportunity to participate in the Pride Parade in San Francisco, it's, uh, it's a pretty wonderful time. You know, it's been a journey, right? We're all on our own personal journeys, and uh, the last four years has been a remarkable part of my life, but it, it's definitely a part of my life. Uh, you know, the decisions I made four years ago to come out in the way that I did, obviously, you know, I had decided I was signing up for something going forward and being part of the discussion, uh, and, you know, I welcome that. And this is, uh, you know, for me, a real honor to, to be participating in this way, and. I guess in, in some ways it, it will be a demonstration of how far professional sports has come in, in a very short period of time, uh, not as far as our society has come, so I think we have a lot to celebrate. Wow, I, I don't think I have any secrets, I don't think I'm that mysterious, you know, I've got a uh, pretty simple life, I like pretty simple things, uh, you know, I've, I've got a great partner, his name's Todd Gage, uh, he has two wonderful children, a 14 year old girl and a 10 year old boy. I, I uh, got off the parade route, got into a car with them, we drove to Lake Tahoe, and I got to watch 14-year-old girls play four soccer games over the course of the weekend and then drive back to the Bay Area. So that's my idea of an exciting weekend, you know, spending it with the kids and my partner and getting to do, you know, the most basic things that any family would get to do. Spotlight on success and achievement presented by Wells Fargo. Together, we'll go far. And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show. Hi, this is Sima Lieberman, the inclusionist, back with Everyday Conversations on Race with Everyday People, and I'm talking to Howard Ross, and we are talking about race, racism, and polarization. And Howard, you were going to share a story. You, I know you do a lot of speaking on bias, and people really like to hear stories. So I'd love it if you could share one of your bias stories. Sure. I, one of the things I tell people all the time is that, you know, one of the breakthroughs we had in the research that we were doing on bias was the recognition um, that bias is not inherently bad. It's simply a mental function, and we can't, we can't function without it. And, um, and all human beings have bias. The Dalai Lama has bias. I mean, it's the nature of the way the brain works uh, for us to have biases one versus the other. Now, sometimes that bias can be really helpful, as in when we spot something dangerous coming to us early enough to avoid it. Sometimes it can be catastrophically dangerous, as we know. But we all have it. And, and just as an example, you know, I've been doing this work uh, professionally now for 35 years. Uh, I went to my first civil rights meeting when I was 15 years old, which is now 51 years ago. And um, about, I don't know, six, seven years ago, I was driving, I, was, I live in the Washington, D.C. area, and I was driving down 16th Street from the area that I live in, which is just northwest of the city, which literally goes right to the White House. And it goes through an area of D.C. that's often called the Gold Coast. It's a high-income area, often a place where government officials come to move, whiter than most parts of the Washington, D.C. area. And it was a beautiful day. It's more like a suburb than it is a city. This part of the city, and I had a convertible at the time. I was driving down, and I get stop. I stop at a stoplight, and a young African American man, dressed in baggy pants, a loose shirt with a hat backwards on his head, um, walks across. And the best way I can say it is that my hand locked the door. Now I say it that way because the top was down in my convertible. It was clearly a completely irrational act. It didn't provide me any protection. And as soon as it happened, I literally looked at my hand and said, "Where did that come from?" It felt almost like somebody else was using my hand, and he heard the lock. And he stopped, not 10 feet from my car, and he turned around, put his hand on his hip, and just looked at me with the 
with disgustedly. And I, um, I quickly said, you're absolutely right. I apologized. And he thanked me with a particular digit of his hand and kept moving on. And I sat there. The first wave that hit me was shame and then guilt. And it was like, how many years do I have to do this work before I drive this demon out of my system was sort of the feeling. Um, then after just sitting there stunned for a little bit and having cars behind me starting to honk, I went on. And then at some point I realized that, you know, th- this is just the nature of the culture we live in. We get these messages and we have to stop um, being ashamed and guilty about them and start taking responsibility for them. So it's something I have to watch out for because as hard as I've worked and as many people as I've known and as many dear friends as I have, and I've got four of my six grandchildren who are of mixed race, it doesn't matter because we all grow up with this. And it's not just me or just that issue. I'm, I'm Jewish and I have family members who rail against anti-Semitism but then make a questionable racial comment. I've seen African-Americans who rail against racism and then make a homophobic or heterosexist yeah. comment. I know LGBT people who make inappropriate comments about Muslims and Muslims who make inappropriate comments about Mexican immigrants. Do you know anybody who got something going on about somebody else? And, and this is the nature of it. So, so that's one thing that I think is really important. Another factor is I think we have to, when we're reaching out to people, to recognize that a lot of times we tend to polarize and think we have to find that person on the other extreme. Um, I spent 10 years on the diversity advisory board for the human rights campaign. I was the only straight man on that group. And, um, um, and one of the things during that time when the marriage equality campaign was happening, and one of the things we realized during that time was that we had to stop aiming the campaign at the extreme right-wing yeah. opposition. Those weren't going to be the people we were going to convince in order to get that campaign to be successful. We had to start looking for those people who are more in the center, who were uncomfortable with marriage equality uh, or same-gender marriage. Um, they were uncomfortable with it, but at the same time, they were uncomfortable with the fact that they could, were denying people rights. It was it, They were more in the conflict, and those are the people who ultimately swung over to change the public image. That's why we now have 60-some percent of the public who support marriage equality. It's not because the extreme right has changed. They're as dug in as they've ever been for the most part. It's because people in that middle ground shifted over to the center. And so I think similarly um, around all of these issues, we have to find those people. This is why I said about the people who vote for Trump. You're not going to ever get those hardcore extremes who voted for Trump, perhaps. But there are a lot of people who voted for him who are now having second thoughts. The Jeff Flakes of the world, for example, um, who who we can reach and, and try to move into a middle ground of more civic behavior, civil behavior. Yeah, I, I agree. And, I, you know, I, I like what you said about responsibility because I hear people sometimes say stuff like, well, we all have biases. Okay, so I'm biased. I'm a racist. I'm a racist, blah, blah, blah. So what? We all are. You know, I'm like, wait a minute. We're talking about t- understanding something. First you understand and then you could take some responsibility for moving forward. Yeah, saying biases in anybody doesn't excuse it. I mean, we, we all have violent tendencies, too. We know human beings have violent tendencies. Anybody who's had a kid and had that moment where you felt like knocking them across the room, but you didn't, um, knows that we can control those violent impulses. Um, uh, and we have a responsibility for controlling those violent impulses. The fact that we all have bias doesn't mean we're not responsible for controlling the impact of it. Yeah, but, and also once you get to know people, like you could have a bias about a particular group, but once you get to know a lot of those people, a lot of people in a group, then it starts, it's like messes with your bias because you're thinking, oh, wait, they don't fit that bias. That's exactly right. As a matter of fact, the research shows, the, the neurocognitive research as well as the social science research shows very clearly that the more we interact with groups of people, um, the more the more likely we are to have um, to have less rigid biased structures. You know, so for example, when they do studies of um, implicit uh, implicit bias around the country, and their researchers like Brian Nosick at University of Virginia who do these massive studies around the country of this, what they find is that the greatest bias, the greatest race bias, ironically in the country, is in the most white 
white homogeneous communities. You go out to places like Wyoming, for example, people have enormous race bias uh, on, on an unconscious level. And what the reason is that all they have are stereotypes. They haven't had that next door neighbor, that friend of their kids, that um, young man who married their niece, that, you know, who, who bring a different um, sense in it. The more we know people for who we are, the less we treat them like what they are. Oh, I, li- I like that. I like that. The more we say that again, repeat that. I said, the more we know people for who we are, the less we treat them like what they are. Because I had an experience, uh, it wasn't so much my experience, it wasn't my, my experience, somebody else's experience too. But I had been involved a lot of, I did a lot of Palestinian Jewish work and a lot of Palestinian friends. And my partner died 15 years ago. And I had, and I had Jewish services at my house almost every night. And a couple of my friends, and it was a really mixed, I mean, it was a mixed bag of people coming to this Jewish service. And a lot of Palestinians were at the Jewish service wearing yarmulkes. And one of my friends who was Jewish said to me, she said, you know, I always had issues about people who were Palestinian because of what, how I thought they were. She said, but after seeing these people at your house, at the service with you, she said, I have to rethink my bias. Mm-hmm. She said, now I want to get to know people. Yeah, Exactly. That's great. I think that's 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 hugely important. But I and I also think that we have to get through our bias of somebody was telling me actually somebody was trying to go out with me and then they made some comment about they don't want to talk to anybody from the flyover zone. I said, What? And they said, you know, the middle of the country who voted for Trump. I'm like, okay, next, I don't need to be with you. You don't need to be with me because that's mm-hmm. not happening. Because I think that there's also that bias of people who don't know anybody who's different than them. So you have people who are nice, little liberal people, and they want to put everybody else down. But no, there is no one state where every single person in that state voted one particular way. Well, I think you're pointing to something else, which we have to be, you know, take responsibility for on the left those of us on the left, and that is that there's a legitimacy to the notion that there can be a mindset among liberals in this country that's elitist, that that makes people wrong. You know, I posted um, a comment on my social media, on on Facebook, um, a a number, a couple months ago now, when um, Clinton's book was coming out, and there was something in, it it was the day that the the comments that she wrote about Bernie Sanders, how Bernie Sanders had lost the election, and and that sort of thing. And, And I simply posted the article, it was from the Washington Post, and, um, and all I put was three words on it, which is not very helpful, meaning yeah. that, you know, we need to come together not to be stoking the division. And the, react, my, the first reaction I got was from um, somebody who was a hardcore Bernie bro type who said, you know, she belongs in jail. And then, <laughs> and then I get, there was another response from somebody to him, because I think the assumption was that he was actually a, a Trump supporter. Um, and, and her response to him was from, this is from this liberal lawyer from D.C., this woman who was a big Clinton supporter, who said to, to him, not to me, but to this other guy, why don't you go back to your trailer park and talk to your mother and father who are probably also your in-laws? And, um, and, I, and this was within 20 minutes at a time I posted. And I said, whoa, folks, first of all, she doesn't belong in jail. Secondly, can we avoid um, elitist uh, classes bias as a way or bigotry as, as a way of dealing with this? Then, meanwhile, this guy, by the way, is, a, is an engineer from the University of Pennsylvania. Not that if he were living in a trailer park, it would mean that he was less than. But, I mean, I think there is that kind of um, that sort of uh, cosmopolitan elitism on the part of liberals yeah. that a lot of people in the country are reacting to. And that's why they, 
that's one of the reasons why Trump, even though the irony of him, him this billionaire trying to be a man of the people, that's one of the things that he tapped into, this notion we're sick and tired of these elitists looking down at our nose and telling us what to do with our lives. And, and that's real. And people have to stop acting like it's not. We have to be responsible for that. I find it really irritating. Mm-hmm. I mean, I find that elitism really serious. And I let's see, I live in Berkeley. Mm-hmm. And, you know... Yeah. I say, well, it's the opposite of liberalism, for sure. Right. I mean, it's insanitism. Yeah. But uh, I remember when, when my lay partner brought my son, we bought him some 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 toy guns, and I said, "Oh, got to leave Berkeley now." <laughs> so I, I, it's you know, I, I've so enjoyed talking to you, and I wish I could talk to you longer, and I'd love to uh, have have you on the show again. Do you have any last minute or or last words? Not last words permanently, but right. last words. Good. I'm show. glad these are my final <laughs> words on the planet. Um, yeah, I think what I would leave people with is that we all have to find uh, greater opportunities for being vulnerable with each other and for having compassion with each other. And um, and it's it always starts with us. You know, we look at the outside circumstances and we wait for the outside circumstances to be perfect for us to relax our guard. Um, but unless we each start reaching out to each other with more vulnerability and more compassion, uh, we face a greater calamity than any of the politics involved. And that is if this society continues to cleave in the way it's going, if we continue to polarize the way we're going, we're going to have issues that go way beyond any particular point of view. Thank you, Howard. This is Sima, the inclusionist, getting ready to sign off. Find me at Sima at SimaLieberman.com if you'd like to make a comment, if you have ideas or suggestions or anything you'd like to hear for future shows. Sima, the inclusionist, talk to you next week.